What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Ask LFC podcast. It is great to be with you here today. My name is Harrison. I am the worship arts director here at Lake Forest Church in Huntersville. Mike Moses, lead pastor Lake Forest. It's Tuesday morning when we normally record, and I'm sitting here without a ball cap. Usually Tuesdays are all internal meetings for me, and I ball cap it up. I don't shave, but today we're taking staff pictures for the web page, so I I spent a long time quaffing all three of my hairs. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You look very fancy today. Thank you. Yeah, Thank no, you. No, I no, that. no problem. No problem. Um, it's great to be here hanging with you guys. We're going to uh, get into a little bit later uh, into the podcast, the main meat of the podcast. We're going to be uh, following up from a book that Mike referenced on Sunday. Um, so we're going to dig into that yes, a little about bit. About successful people. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're in the first half of life, some things you need to know about yourself. And things you need to know uh, as you enter the second half of life. Yep. But before that, we wanted to just uh, bring you guys up to speed on a couple of uh, cool things that are going on around here. The first one, um, we if you're if you're a just a, a average regular Sunday morning attender around here, you may or may not know that Lake Forest is a family of churches. We've talked about it here on the podcast a bunch. Uh, over the last couple of years of doing it, um, but it, it we mention it from time to time on Sundays. But it's something that makes Lake Forest unique, and there are some some special things that mm-hmm. our family of churches share. All, the The family of churches are Lake Forest Huntersville, Lake Forest Westlake over in Denver. Lead pastor Aaron Gibson, uh, El Buen Samaritano with lead pastor Victor Leal meets right. Just right a couple miles from our Huntersville campus here in the Huntington Green neighborhood. And then our newest member of the family of churches is Lake Forest U City, and that is Pastor Terrell Huntley. So, Mike, what makes Lake Forest family of churches unique, and what do we share? Yeah. Uh, in 2010 and 2011, we discerned the elders and pastors that the, uh, just like God gives each Christian— uh, there, your our own talent, unique talents, and spiritual gift mix, and that looks different for each of us. And Jesus says, "Hey, use those talents to multiply ministry." Um, and uh, we we named it that for Lake Forest as a church. A unique talent is that we have an ability to raise up, coach up, innovative. N- pastors who have an entrepreneurial gift to start new creative contextualized communities worshiping Jesus that reach new people for Christ. And so what we decided is when we support church plants and coach church planters in other uh, regions of North Carolina like Asheville right now or Richmond right now, we support them financially and we'll coach them. When we start churches in the Charlotte region, they are they stay connected to us as a a family church in Lake Forest. Uh, and we stay connected for mission primarily mm-hmm. because now we as a family of four churches and Lake Forest Church Davidson became its own church. If you've heard of Story Hill Church in Davidson, North Carolina, they were in the family of churches. Now they're a friendly church and even they participate. So we all pile 3% of annual giving together into a church multiplication fund that over time the family of churches can plant more churches more quickly, more innovative churches. And we've developed, think of the pastors you just mentioned and their ability to coach 
different type of young, innovative pastors mm-hmm. for different types of contexts, more than I could have coached back in 2010. And so uh, we, we, will, um, we will bring in church planning trainees and residents, we already do, who can train. They could pick any one of those contexts in which to train. And young ministers are looking for that opportunity. So as a family, we can really resource that. Um, Anyway, that's that the other so the mission of multiplying churches is the number one reason we're family of churches. We can do it more powerfully and more of them in less amount of time together the more churches we are as a family. Uh, even though all of, and then number 2, we're united by the word of God. We understand out of the word of God, we've articulated a, a mission, vision and values for our church. And all of our family of churches un- operate understanding of that mission, vision, and values out of God's word, not out of our little brain sitting around writing poetry together. <laughs> Number two, uh, we preach this. Uh, we have, if you're familiar with traditional church, we have what we call the Lake Forest Lectionary. A lectionary is what traditional and Roman Catholic churches for millennia have uh, the same scripture that every church in their association around the world preaches from on Sunday. Well, we determine that for the Lake Forest family of churches. And we're about, and it's a fun way, and then we have the same sermon series at each of our churches. They might go by different names, that you know, whatever feels appropriate to each lead pastor, because each lead pastor is a lead pastor. But what are we about to do around that part of what unites us, the Word of God? Yeah, twice a year, uh, we try to gather with all of the lead pastors and a handful of staff uh, from all four of our churches to gather and look down the road on the calendar and uh, ask ourselves this question, what word of God do the people of God need to hear over this next season? And we answer, we sit down, we brainstorm, we answer that together, we we uh, try to discern uh we 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 pray we ask the holy mm-hmm. spirit to lead and guide us in this process mm-hmm. of, of asking uh what what do the the people in our churches need to hear over this next season we we look at the calendar gather ideas try to put it all together the best we can and sometimes that might have to do with oh it's that back to school back to work fall mm-hmm. season and that's that hits an ethos for everyone in all of our churches other times it might be hmm our people, what do they want to hear? Well, they don't want to hear uh, an Old Testament prophet book taught for four or five weeks. But we need to do that because maybe we haven't taught out of the Old Testament prophets in a while, and we want a balanced biblical diet for the disciples of Jesus who worship at all of our churches over the period of a few years. We're not trying to cram it all into one year. So this Wednesday we'll be meeting, and our objective, we have no idea what we're preaching the Sunday after Easter. Yep. <laughs> um, and so it'll be, we, we're planned out of all of Gospel of Luke through Easter and the resurrection, and then uh, we'll, we hope to plan uh, mid-April through the end of the year. And we already are starting with a couple of fixed ideas. But anyway, yeah. it's that's about... I mean, I have a lot of favorite things I do, sure. yeah. <laughs> including two people Sunday who walked out and said, I've renewed my faith in Jesus after decades, and another one, this is new to me, who could I meet with here to talk about, I, like, I'm actually getting established in my faith and I'm growing, who could I meet with, a, they both asked a similar question, about what are the right relationships and things to do to keep growing, because I love what God's doing in my life, and mm-hmm. I was like, well, 
well, how about me? <laughs> <laughs> so I gave them both my email address, and one has already followed up. That's so. awesome. Well, the the other neat thing about our, our sermon planning time. So that's a favorite thing that I do. Oh, for but sure. sermon planning with the well, pastors digging into the Word, I love. Yeah, one thing that's cool about that, um, Pastor Aaron and I started here at Lake Forest about the same time, and I remember back when he was beginning, and, and we were all kind of uh, asking Aaron, you know, why did you choose to be a part of Lake Forest and to plant a church within a family of churches rather than kind of staking out on your own. And one of the, one of the things that Aaron said and uh, pastor Byron from the L liberation ministries has echoed this sentiment Mm -hmm. later on. They participate as a partner church in the sermons planning. They, they, they hang pastor Byron hangs out with all of you as lead pastors and gets encouragement and community with you guys. But, but Aaron said, uh, being a lead pastor at a church plant uh, can be a really lonely mission for a lot of pastors across America. And <clears throat> he was just excited and intrigued by the idea of being able to do this in community with you guys and to not have to to try to sit down alone in some office or study every week and try and figure out what in the world he's doing and ch- chart this course for this group of people. So um, he's enjoyed and it's turned into a real strength for Lake Forest, I think, for us to be able to gather together and for you guys as lead pastors who are preaching the word to get encouragement from each other. So That's a real strength for me. An unlooked-for strength in the Family of Churches model is um, I, I go on a retreat with pastors of similar and larger-sized churches once a year uh, um, in our denomination, the lead pastors, and the, the <laughs> like church planters report. Pastors of larger churches report how lonely it is to lead the church in your singular position, and I I, I can relate to that. Um, however, I can't. Uh, Aaron and Lake Forest West Lake are now a congregation that is uh, uh, over a thousand from time to time, mm-hmm. and 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 they're only and there's they're still just a year and a half or so into their first building, and so Aaron and I now have. We just have these two simpatico lead pastors of other large churches. Neither of us is the other one's boss. The boss of Aaron and the boss of me are the active elders at each of our churches any given year. We are peers. Um, and so we, but, and yet we are leading um, our churches in this family. And so we feel incredibly less alone than all other lead pastors who do kind of what I do that I'm with, and I'm, mm. like, it was this unlooked-for grace, Aaron, uh, uh, Harrison, of what God was leading us to in order to plant churches more mm. rapidly. Here is this little beautiful grace that combats a major downfall of many pastors of larger churches who keep their own counsel or begin to feel isolated, like, um, isolate themselves, et cetera, et cetera. So, hey, so we get to do that Wednesday. Um, something that a number of you commented on after Sunday's sermon, which um, Harrison, had you ever heard us address or anywhere you've been a passage of scripture of what Jesus thinks about successful people? I've heard a lot of sermons, so the, the probability is there somewhere, but it was very fresh on Sunday and I appreciated it. And I appreciated throughout this series has been cool, Mike, just seeing uh, and unpacking Jesus interactions with different types of people because a lot of times we think oh well Jesus the many of the stories you hear Jesus was there for 
the lowest of the low, the most broken people. He's mm-hmm. healing the sick. And then you come across Which this. Which is actually most distinctive of him, of a world, a uh, historical world religious leader if, hmm. leader, if we could put it that way. Yeah. Uh, but then we encountered this story in the Gospel of Luke of Jesus interacting. There are a couple of uh, well-known passages, this being one of them, Jesus interacting with what can only be described as a successful person of good standing and in their community. And he corrected him in no way. Yes. Only blessed him, only affirmed, only approved, uh, thus answering it. Because every now and then, people will articulate to me quietly. Am I, should I feel guilty for the money I've earned, the the company I've built, the and, and so I— I really wanted the whole sermon to just be, a, irrespective of the particularities of the words, to be a hefty chunk of Scripture and an image in people's minds, because we have a lot of successful people because of where we are. Just a, Jesus sees me mm-hmm. in this. And, and then to speak about, and here are the qualities he was amazed by in this man, be, maybe because he was successful, that could be reading too much into it, but but perhaps not. Um, so I referenced this book that a uh, a mentor of mine had given me recently because I'm I'm reading books about the second half of life and uh, priorities there and um, and so this book by uh, I referenced it Arthur Brooks B R O O K S it only came out in 2022. Um, those of you who read a lot in social sciences, you might be familiar with him. He he, he writes quite a bit, is well-published and, and a noted authority on human happiness. He's at Harvard and in the Kennedy School. Interestingly, it's the Kennedy School of Government and Public Policy, and that's where they've located a social scientist on happiness. I just find mm. that interesting. Mm. Um, I'm looking forward to getting to the end of the book. He keeps quoting Scripture and St. Augustine and medieval Christian monks. I mean, he quotes Buddha and such, but the theme – there's a – the title of the book comes from a psalm, uh, but the book is From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. What caused him to begin researching this book was an event. Uh, his introduction, he titles it, The Man on the Plane Who Changed My Life. Hmm. Uh, he was on a plane, a late-night plane. He was in the striver period of his own work. For a decade, he led a, a high-powered um, uh, research and uh, political, um, what do you call it, advocacy. Um, anyway, political advocacy group in D.C. with a bunch of movers and shakers. And he was toward the end of that 10 years when he ended up going into academia. But he was on a plane, tired and doing a bunch of work that he was like, it's very important work, 10 o'clock at night. When he heard the, uh, an elderly woman reply to the whatever her husband, elderly husband, husband behind him on the plane had mumbled to her and she said it's not true that no one needs you anymore and he said his ears perked up um he's like hmm and then he heard the husband murmur something else and he's like okay i don't want to turn around and stare i don't really want to be an overhearer but i'm really interested in this Hmm. and then it so the husband mumbled something else and then the elderly wife said again oh stop saying it would be better if you were dead (laughs) brooks says okay now they have my full attention um and and i imagine someone i didn't look but i formed an image in my head 
of the husband. I imagine someone who had worked hard all his life in relative obscurity, someone disappointed at his dreams unfulfilled, perhaps the career he never pursued, the schools he never attended, the company he never started. Now I imagine he was forced to retire, tossed aside like yesterday's news. As the lights switched on after touchdown, I finally got a look at the desolate man. I was shocked. I recognized him. He was well-known, famous even. Then in his mid-80s, he had been universally beloved as a hero for his courage, patriotism, and accomplishments uh, decades ago. I have admired him since I was young. As he passed up the aisle of of the plane behind me, passengers recognized him and murmured with veneration. Standing at the door of the cockpit, the pilot recognized him and said, echoing my own thoughts, Sir, I've admired you since I was a little boy. The older man, apparently wishing for death just a few minutes earlier, beamed at the recognition of his past glories. I wondered, which more accurately describes the man? The one filled with joy and pride right now? Or the one 20 minutes ago telling his wife he might as well be dead? Hmm. And, and Bro- Arthur Brooks says he couldn't get the cognitive dissonance of that encounter out of his mind. Uh, and he was, he was just turning 48. Uh, and he said, I'm not world famous like that man, but have attained success and a lot of achievement in my field. Uh, but aware of what workaholism was taking out of me. Um, and he found a list written on his 40th birthday, and at 48, he had achieved most of his professional goals. And he said, even if it did deliver satisfaction, could I really keep this going? And the, he, he reviewing all these goals, he was like, when I was 40, I imagine if I achieved those, I would be like the happiest person on the planet. And he's like, I'm above, maybe a little below average happy. He's just being a, a man honest. So all that to say, um, he, and he's like, would I wind up looking back on my life telling my long-suffering wife, Esther, that I might as well be dead? Was there a way to get off the hamster wheel of success and accept inevitable professional decline with grace? Maybe even turn it into opportunity. So as a social scientist, he turned this into a research project and this book. Um, I'm not going to read the whole book, Harrison. Don't worry. Uh, what does that story <laughs> on the plane make you think about? It it makes me think about um, <clears throat> it makes me think about just personally the the targets that I mean I set in my own life for what is going to make me feel fulfilled. What what, what will I reflect back on that I will feel like yeah I was successful. I I did I did well in life and the things that I was aiming for. And like I, it, it, the, the goal setting at 40 thing especially is interesting because I'm thinking about what are the, you'll be turning 40 in a couple of years. Yeah. yeah. So what, what, you know, what targets do you set where you could reflect back on them in 10 years and be like, I picked the right things. I'm like uh-huh. trying to think of what those right things are. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, the, the research finding that I uh, put on screen in the sermon, I'll repeat it here and then I'm going to take it a step further. I'll give you a little bit of his detailed research that may be interesting to you, depending on your profession. And then I'll just tell you where he begins to unwind this. Um, He says, nearly universal. uh, uh, um, He said, what I found was a hidden source of anguish that wasn't just widespread, but nearly universal 
among people who have done well in their careers. I came to call this the striver's curse. People who strive to be excellent at what they do often wind up finding their inevitable decline terrifying, their successes increasingly unsatisfying, and their relationships lacking. Hmm. So again, they find their inevitable decline terrifying. I'll unpack that a little bit. (laughs) Their success is increasingly unsatisfying. And one research finding, by the way, like this is quantified. Harrison, it's interesting that people study these things. People who are successful, they're like, so like that man on the plane, rarely find any satisfaction from successes in the past. Hmm. It gives very little. It's, It's common to the human experience. It's only new successes, which as you age or you go on and, and you're kind of – so anyway, that's interesting. Um, and their relationships lacking due to inattentiveness to that side of goal setting to, to your highlight there in their life. And he says the good news is what I was looking for. There is a way to escape that curse. And, and that's what he lays out in this book, what he discovered and he stitches together a lot of uh, mm. um, things. So, um, and he talks about it finding a new kind of success in the second half, and and maybe particularly late in career and life, a deeper form of happiness than what you had before. And, but he says this path will mean, you know, starting anywhere in your forties or fifties or sixties, depending on who you are, it will mean going against many of your striverly instincts. And it won't be easy. Uh, it will be hard. Hmm. So the, the next chapter is called Your Professional Decline is Coming, in parentheses, much, into parentheses, sooner than you think. Hmm. Here's another snippet. Darwin died considering his career to be a disappointment. He was a fairly young man when he made all of his discoveries. I won't, uh, I won't detail it. And, and he wrote Origin of Species, his magnum opus that was you know the world renowned um and then the second half of his life he really didn't produce original research he kept writing a lot but it was just going over and over the same thing uh he stagnated creatively he hit a wall in his research and didn't make new breakthroughs and in his last years he was still very famous but increasingly unhappy about his life And he wrote about seeing his work as unsatisfying, unsatisfactory, and unoriginal. Um, Quote, I have not the heart or strength at my age to begin any investigations lasting years, which is the only thing which I enjoy, he wrote to a friend. I have everything to make me happy and contented, but life has become wearisome to me. Mm. He was successful by the world standards, washed up by his own. And he also wrote to that same friend, that his fame and fortune were now like eating straw. Wow. Um, And and Brooks, this author, says, actually, the research shows Darwin's decline was completely normal and right on schedule. And for you and me, we don't have his notability, none of us, I doubt, in my hearing. But it will come much, much sooner than you think. Um, We know that our professional, physical, and mental decline is inevitable. We probably just think it's a longer way off. It's a lot longer off for you, Harrison, than me. Um, And he said, here's the reality, and this is research-based. In practically every high-skill profession, decline sets in sometime between one's late 30s and early 50s. 
And he says, sorry, I know that stings. And, and we all notice it in athletes, right? Mm-hmm. We just yep. get that. Athletes, they just make the deal. That's just the deal. But in all, um, in Nobel Prize winners, which is not athleticism, the most common age for great discovery of Nobel Prize winners is one's late 30s. Notice, like you have a picture of somebody accepting the Nobel Prize. They're usually older men <clears> or women. But it's usually recognizing something discovered in their 30s mm-hmm. that then, you know, over 20 years now has been, oh, yeah, that was correct. Uh, but the discovery was then. And the likelihood of a major discovery, this is among research scientists, increases steadily through one's 20s and 30s. Harrison, get on this for two more years. Working on it. Um, and then the likelihood of major discovery declines dramatically through one's 40s, 50s, and 60s. There are plenty of outliers, outliers, but the probab- this is scientists. The probability of producing a major innovation at age seventy is approximately equal to what it was at age twenty, about zero. That's actually very famously true. Also, Mike of uh, Albert Einstein, who was really? one of the, I mean, uh, who his his papers that he produced on relativity, he he wrote those sitting at a desk working as a patent clerk, not even as a scientist. Really? All mental exercises in his mind. And he produced this as a young man, and the rest of his life he was he worked as hard as he could to try and find this unified theory that would bring uh, Newton's physics together with this quantum theory. He worked, it drove him nuts. He couldn't do it. It still hasn't been done. So if Einstein couldn't figure it out, but his most major, the the most notable genius of the last couple centuries yes made his breakthrough made it famous on the world stage and then he didn't really do any other major wow contribution from that it's crazy wow <clears throat> well he that's this so that bears out this this research for writers decline sets in between 40 and 55 hmm. financial professionals reach peak performance between 36 and 40 doctors appear to peak in their 30s with steep drop-offs in skills as the years passed. In other words, listen to this, physicians over 65 are 50% more likely than younger doctors under 51 at being found at fault for malpractice. Hmm. Um, Entrepreneurs reach creative decline, many by age 30. Um, The average age of the founders of the highest growth startups is in fact 45. The age-related decline among air traffic controllers is so sharp, and the consequences of their decline-related errors so dire. Mm-hmm. Do you know what the mandatory age of retirement is for air traffic controllers? No. 56. Man. Wow. <laughs> I know one. Uh, wow. That's a, so th- then there's some personal anecdotes here. So let me just start to get an answer. Number one, we can all imagine the, be- the more you know Jesus and the Scriptures— you could imagine uh, some of the the ways to set up your life so that um, uh, so that you don't suffer from the striver's curse as you age. And he details some of the some of the the details of the types of brain functioning that do decline. And I'm not going to go to that. So he says, "Here's there's so there's that curve. There's that decline curve of peak peak uh, creative." and new ideas performance. And so he says the key is for strivers is uh, is to get on the second curve. That first curve is going to happen. Yep. 
But it's a choice whether or not we get on a second curve. And he says there are some specific ways in which we naturally get smarter and more skillful. The trick to improving as we age is to understand, develop, and practice these new strengths. And I'm not going to go into extreme detail, but like, for example, as people age, do you know what? They maintain and add to their vocabulary just as much as when you're young. With age, people are better at combining and utilizing complex ideas. We're less as good at coming up with the new, new idea or the new complex idea, but you're actually better at combining and utilizing complex ideas. This is going to fit with several biblical principles. You, you get better at interpreting the ideas others have. You might be the guy who at, at 37 or whatever age you are, um, 37, who comes up with the brand new idea. But I, at 57, might be better able to interpret what it means for the church Mm -hmm. and how to deploy it. That's kind of where he goes here. And so you can either keep knocking yourself out. No, I am the innovator. I'm going to be the source of all the new ideas. And I I know how that would apply in my profession. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I'm still – everybody better look to me because when you're my age, it starts to sting when the really young innovators stop – listening to you in the meeting and they look to the the 40 year olds in the meeting i experienced that this weekend at our denominational meeting which i worked all day friday saturday sat in a denominational meeting guess who the youngest most creative church planners wanted to talk to during the breaks instead of me aaron gibson (laughs) (laughs) now i'm i'm a bit of an old lion and they wanted to talk to me about various things but uh, so I'm experiencing this is what I'm saying sure. right now. Yeah. Um, and so um, early on, you may invent ideas, no matter what your profession. Um, but later on, you synthesize ideas, your own and others. And let me just I'm going to give two more geeky details here. OK, because the people listening to the Ask LFC podcast are uh, thank thank you for being disciples who geek out a little more than others on your own church. You take it seriously, you take ownership, and, uh, and, and this is a way for us to actually have more mind and heart share yep. together. Mm-hmm. So he says the difference is to, he, now he, he just bring, he's like a, you ever read a, 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 a Malcolm Gladwell book? Yes, I have. This guy's like that. He, he synthesizes, he's in second half of life, yeah. <laughs> all these other research. So there's this research about two types of intelligence, Harrison. I'm going to try to do this really briefly. Fluid intelligence and crystallized intelligence. And, and fluid intelligence is what, is what we peak at in our 30s, depending on your profession, we peak at earlier. Um, and it has to do with... with the ability to reason, to think flexibly, and solve novel problems. In other words, younger folks in the first half of life are naturally the best innovators in raw new ideas. And when I thought about that, that's been true in my own career. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take too much time, you know, but when I came out of seminary to what was a very cutting-edge church for the unchurched in Memphis, Tennessee, it was so cutting-edge all the other evangelical churches in Memphis, Tennessee in 1993, Harrison, they called us a false church. Hmm. Uh, there was an ad in the newspaper that the Church of Christ took out against us saying, this is the Burger King church, have it your way. Th- that literally wow. happened in the newspaper, the yeah. commercial appeal. 
Um, because we started a Saturday night service and said, hey, if that's a better worship time for you, come on Saturday night. And, and that was their response in the newspaper. Um, and yet, and they were following an early Rick model, Rick Warren purpose-driven model church on the, in the deep south. This was quite uh, earth-shattering, uh, uh, groundbreaking. But focusing on Jesus teaching the Word of God with solid Presbyterian theology, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is better defined and more clear doctrine than Baptistic, any Baptistic church. They do not have their doctrine as well-defined or as historically orthodox, just to say it. But, and here they were, these lowbrow theologians. Uh, excuse, uh, my biases are coming through. Please forgive me. Uh, please forgive me. Um, but even so, I came out of seminary, and there I was, and these guys are cutting edge. There's drums in church. That was new. Yep. But it was all chill. The worship team had matching pastel shirts. It was very chill. And the pastors wore tie, coat and tie. I had to go buy a coat and tie. You know, I'd just come from Cali. Um, and so I was like, hey, I'm giving the children's sermon this next Sunday. We were meeting in an auditorium. Could I, could I wear jeans? Well, the pastors had a powwow. Can can our young youth pastor with that surfer haircut? Is it okay if he, like, this had not been done in Memphis, Tennessee before? Yeah, uh, nineteen ninety three. <laughs> wow. And and f- for all the reasons that I still wear them today, to communicate approachability. Yep. Uh, pastor people, the the if I could use a Reformation phrase, the priesthood of all believers, if I want to get theological. So they were like, sure. And people, you wouldn't, I mean, the comments <laughs> were all over. But within six months, the other pastors were wearing jeans. Yep. It was, a, so that's, not, now, I found out later, they were, the Jesus people started doing that in the early 70s in L.A. This was no, Groundbreaking, but you get the idea. So I'm identifying with this, um, and I there are a few other things that would be interesting to talk about. Um, so that's fluid intelligence, like solving novel problems. Novel problem. People in the '90s are like Christianity is irrelevant to me. A seemingly now um, trivial solution. What if the people up front who are professional Jesus people wore jeans like normal people in real life? Um, and, and, and then the phrase for our church became, uh, uh, a real church for real people and a real God. And the genes fit that motto. Okay. But then there's crystallized intelligence, which is the ability to use a stock of knowledge learned in the past. Uh, and that ability, so fluid intelligence to solve complex novel problems is high first half of life. Second half of life, you actually grow in your ability, studies show, to use a stock of knowledge learned in the past and, and synthesize it for more powerful use of that knowledge. And that tends to increase with age all the way through our 40s, 50s, and 60s. And here's kind of the punchline we might say biblically and culturally. <laughs> I mean, this is done. He says, translation, when you're young, you have raw smarts. When you're old, you have wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> Duh. Um, but 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 are we as strivers and Lake Norman people tend to be Christians that I know as much as those who are not? Are we being self-reflective and conscious of these things so that number one, even when we're strivers, we also have right goals? We are not neglecting relationships. We are not only 
getting satisfaction from current success, but we are getting our satisfaction in Christ alone? Um, and are we not building pride alone on achievement because there's a lot of people I know who could? But are we, are we boasting only in Christ? That's, that's the solution to the striver's curse. But then can we leverage this second, this later in career and, and, and become more valuable? Because, by the way, the oldest college professors have the best teaching evaluations within college departments. And he says, mm-hmm. one takeaway is tell your college-age kids, take the oldest professors. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really interesting. And, and so it, this is the idea of whatever career you're in, moving your responsibilities and your value as much as possible to instruction as a theme um, rather than uh, being the, the generator of the new ideas. Mm-hmm. You're the assimilator of the ideas, and, of, of the, and you're recognizing them in other staff, younger people in your organization. And he says this theme finds... Uh, this is the theme, of course, we find in the great wisdom literature of the East and the West. And he quotes the Bible and Cicero and all kinds of people. And then he talks about the joy of this uh, in the second phase. I like this quote. I read this to Angie in bed last night because I, I was reading this, this chapter. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. <laughs> and, um, so there you go. Um, and he, he gives a great, uh, uh, that working harder doesn't work in this latter part of your career. And, and so rather than continuing to get the, the hit to the amygdala of the brain of satisfaction from novel successes, can you rework your own self and your own values that you get the hit? Not to working more. In fact, you, you detox from, he talks about detoxing as a chapter from, um, from um, overwork and addiction to overwork and success. Uh, investing in worthier goals, but that you don't have to be that person to now succeed at the instruction at the assimilation at the uh, stage of your career. So mm. there you have it. Um, the, that's a, that would have been way too much uh, for the sermon yesterday, mm. which is tight and on the Bible. <laughs> no, but I, I, as you get further through that book, Mike, here in a couple more podcasts down the line, I'd be curious to, there's some really cool stuff in here. Um, I, 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 I feel like we're still cutting it short to me, so okay. I, I'm enjoying it. Let me finish with on, on his title page. He, he quotes the, the psalm that the title of the book, the book, title of the book is From Strength to Strength, and it's from Psalm 84. So we'll finish with this and talk to you all next week. Psalm 84, verses 5 to 7. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion.